to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disaster planning, emergency management, crisis management, well-being, COVID, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I respond to everything I get. couple of quick announcements. A reminder, I will be uh, co-presenting a keynote speech at the BCI World in London, England on November 2nd and 3rd. I uh, hope you uh, can make it and join us there. And second, uh, Preparing for the Unexpected will be broadcasting live from the Continuity and Resilience Today conference with someone you know from the show, James Green. He will be uh, co-hosting with me. We'll be chatting with different guests and different subjects. That's November 16th and 17th. And hopefully uh, you're in the neighborhood and you can stop by and uh, sign up and uh, attend the conference. It's just down the road, actually, from my house. It'll be in Toronto. Today, we're going to be talking about building resilience for in small businesses. And I'd like to welcome to the show today, I want to make sure I get the title right, founder of Resilience Ready in Melbourne, Australia. So joining us from a long way today, Renee Hanwin. Renee, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you. How are things in Melbourne today? Melbourne's not too bad. We're coming out of uh, winter into summer, so getting a little glimpse of the sunshine. So early morning here, so it's pretty good. Well, if, from what I recall, uh, your your winters are, are summers anyway. So, <laughs> oh, Well, they used to be, but no, they're definitely getting a little bit colder. And I think we've just gone past the um, mark where every year we say, why don't we move to Queensland? Why do we live down south? Um, so, yes, no, summer's, summer's coming, which is good. Good. <laughs> um, for the, anyone uh, that may not know who you are, could you just take a minute and introduce yourself, what you do, and how you got into this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, yeah, Renee Hanvin. I'm the founder of a social enterprise called Resilient Ready and based in Melbourne, but we do work um, all across Australia and internationally. So my passion and focus is uh, small business resilience because I know that small businesses are the economic heart and soul of communities and there's not been a lot of focus on businesses. So I'm really passionate about how we can help build capabilities and set businesses up to thrive. And it all started, I actually worked for the Australian Postal Service uh, back in about 2013 when Brisbane flooded, so one of the um, main oh, cities yeah. up in Queensland. And I was watching what was happening to all the Australia Post licensees, the little stores that owned by mums and dads. And I think that really set, a, I guess, a um, an interest in me as to what can I do to help them get more prepared. So, yeah, it's a side of um, resilience, I think, that is 
I used to call it the forgotten stakeholder group. Um, mm. So I think COVID globally obviously has put them on the map and, and we need to be helping um, small businesses in their journey as well. I remember the floods in uh, Brisbane. I've got a book here somewhere that talks about it. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, I was in Brisbane, the part, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's got the uh, Brisbane Eye and yep. Yep. Uh, that that section there, um, you know, nice shops and everything. And yeah. uh, by one of those shops, it's a, a cream-colored wall or a white wall, but you can actually see darker colors below it mm-hmm. and line right across, and that's how high it is, how the water went. You know, And I kind of went, wow, that's pretty high, considering you if you look towards the river, everything goes down like this, <laughs> you know, including yeah. the, the sidewalks. And I went, wow, that was quite the flood here. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, we I like to use the kind of 80-20 rule when planning for disasters. And that's what we tell a lot of um, the communities and that that we work on. But, you know, how do you really plan for a flood that is so large? And we've had, you mm-hmm. know, northern New South Wales here around Lismore. And I know you've got family from Lismore, like they had the experience um, last year and a couple of, you know, about three, four years ago as well. And it's interesting because the conversations now are not about how do you get things so that you can lift them up? Because you can't really lift them up high enough anymore because the floods right, are going, yeah. you know, almost up to the second story. Now it's about how can you bag your things and tie them down so they stay dry and don't float away. So it's it's True, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And we're mm. going to talk a little bit more about Lismore later on. Um, yep. So, But I have a question to start with first. Since we're going to be talking about small businesses, Using that as a frame of reference, how do you define resilience? Gosh, that's the magical word of the moment, isn't it? And I think it's the word that <laughs> I everyone... won't hold it to you. <laughs> no, well, do you know what? It's it's funny because going into communities, and we've been doing a lot with bushfire impacted communities, and resilience now is almost it just doesn't mean anything. I think it's because it's mm. become a word that is just utilized everywhere, which is extraordinary because I've called my business resilient ready. So I think resilient is a better word than resilience because resilience is, I guess, a form of the future. We need to build resilience. Okay, yeah, but what does that actually mean? Many of us Mm. are already, we have resilience in us. So when disaster and chaos happens, you know, we, we just do things that make us resilient. But I think resilient and ready is where, I guess, the culture needs to come. And resilient ready for me is that we are, as ready as possible for whatever disruption might come to impact us. So it's all about preparedness and getting ready before. Now, we're we're going to be talking about small businesses. So are we talking mom and pop shops, you know, corner store, or are we talking uh, 300 employees, small manufacturing? How are we, what do, what do we call a small business? Yeah, so we call small businesses those with up to 19 or 20 employees. So anything that's kind of 20 to 200 employees is usually a medium sort of growing up to a medium-sized corporate. So small businesses uh, equate to, I think it's now up to 98% of businesses around the world from a, a totality number as small businesses. So it's everything from likely your uh, your GP, your chemist, your hairdresser, your franchise owner of one of the big multinationals. Um, it's your, you know, the 
guy next door who does your lawns. It's, you know, it's a it's a whole myriad of um, people, mums, dads. I think the COVID has, um, you know, made a lot of people, I guess, reset what they want to do. And so they've set up their own side hustles or they're, so, you know, solopreneurs, et cetera. So it's really that kind of, um, I guess, that category of people, any age, any industry, um, but no more than about 19 employees. You You mentioned something earlier that I thought was rather interesting too, that uh, when we were talking that it's kind of a uh, an area that's overlooked you know and if they take up uh, you know 90 what was the number 98 percent 98 percent of yep. all businesses and yet that's obviously a massive percentage but it's overlooked and resilience compliance and everybody even government tends to look at that remaining three percent why is that then why why are they the forgotten realm it's it's a really interesting question and i guess one i spent a few years um researching and trying to kind of identify and i think there's a few reasons for it i guess from a uh, economic perspective obviously it's probably easier for government to work with the big industry end of town that brings in you know the multi-billions and squillions of taxpayer dollars etc yeah um and i think because with before COVID, and you know, we had catastrophic bush, bushfires in 2019 and 20, and there were so many stories of small business owners whose business went out of business because they were off fighting the fires as a volunteer firefighter, or the business went out of business because of all the sometimes mostly unwanted goods that were being delivered into the community, which meant no one bought from the shop. And I think, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And dare I say it, you know, a lot of people in government are very smart and they're wonderful people, but they have never owned a business. They've never run a business. They've never, almost a lot of the times, they've never been in a community that's been impacted by a disaster. And you don't know what you don't know. So I think the notion of, you know, business and the term business being that big multinational major corporate profit-making machine is actually incorrect because, again, 98% globally are, are me, are your mums, dads, you know, you know, um, immigrants just setting up a restaurant. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, yeah. it's the culture of society. So, yeah, I think it's time that we need to start thinking differently about them as well. It, you mentioned a point there that a lot of times these uh, – politicians haven't run a, a a small business like this but they come from the big corporate so that's Correct. the only only area they know right absolutely so yep. how do you how do you turn that around how do you get them to start looking at something and i know well, there's all kinds of things um we can probably talk about but how do you how do you get that change to happen to 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 flip you know focus from the three percent to the 97 yeah look i mean it's something that i've been advocating for for about five years now uh and i had people in um senior positions at the federal government say well that's really nice renee but we don't look after businesses and even now i'm finding um i have meetings with you know emergency services people very high up in government or business people and i think the business community kind of fits in a bit of a, a hole and, you know, it's not me. Oh, I look after disasters, but, oh, I don't look after businesses. Oh, I look after businesses, but not to get them ready for a disaster. So um, we've been working behind the scenes on a lot of advocacy around how can we, you know, whose responsibility is it, first of all, and then how can we change the focus 
um, and include them. And a great example is I was advising um, a government department on they process mapped the experience of a person when a bushfire happened. And I sat there for 20 minutes and I listened and it's like, oh, that's lovely and it's very pretty and it's very exciting, you know, it looks very shiny. And I said to them, what about the 8, 10, 12, 14 hours that they go to their job, they earn a livelihood, they run a business. Why is that not anywhere in your plan? Oh, no, we, don't, we haven't been briefed to do that. So how do you plan for disasters and plan for recovery and response without considering the fact that people have to earn a livelihood and businesses mm -hmm. have to stay open, if not to make money for the business owner, but to serve and deliver products and services vital for the community? It, it seems to be a uh, a little bit of a uh, polarizing issue because you've got your small business and you you, you have your let's say up to twenty people. Uh, you have a bushfire, using your example. Let's say half of those employees go to volunteer to help yeah. help their community and help their mm -hmm. their state or their country, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And at the same time, on the other end, now their business is suffering. So they go to help one area to yep. just kind of that is suffering. They go to help that and their area now is suffering, but in a different way. Oh, a hundred percent. And I've seen it in real life over and over and over again. And then you have, particularly in, um, you know, rural areas, regional areas, business owners, like they are really, you know, important people in communities. So the businesses in those areas are social and economic heartbeats of communities. And there's a loyalty and there's a, you know, they don't want to let the employees who are local community members down. So I've seen firsthand examples of business owners siphoning through hundreds of thousands of dollars of their savings to keep their employees paid so they don't have to take the responsibility of their employees not being able to pay their rent. Now, how does that roll when they're out fighting fires as volunteers to not necessarily save even their community, but save the community down the road. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's wrong. And part of our advocacy is um, we have a pay to participate and paid to participate. So big corporate ends of town, if they want to do work with us, they pay to participate and we take some of what they pay and we pay it forward to those small business owners because if they're involved in, you know, deciding national strategy or coming up with plans and everyone else around the table is being paid their big corporate or government salary, those people with the most experience should be paid too. And that's something I'm really passionate about as well. And as a small business owner, you know, I get asked to comment and participate in things all the time. Now, I have more knowledge to give than most people who are asking me the questions. So I don't give any knowledge to certain stakeholders unless they pay for it. <laughs> yeah, really, you know, everyone should benefit somehow, but also, you know, pay your dues to get that as well. 100%. Know, and, and, and by paying me, it's paid on. Do you know what I mean? We're a social yeah. enterprise. So we help and support those community people who need it the most. So, yeah. So with communities and their, their you know, business centers and and all the, uh, the small shops, should they mobilize some way to get the ball rolling or approach someone and say, hey, you know, we need the same kind of support that you're giving, you know, the the huge conglomerates. I mean, obviously, maybe not the same scale, but some some level of support. You know, should should that be a starting point for small businesses? Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, Alex, the reality of a small business owner, you are working, you know, 
20 hours a day probably. Mm. You are putting all of your time, energy, your cash flow into keeping your business in business, particularly at the moment with all the challenges of COVIDs and floods, et cetera. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, and working with a wonderful um, academic based in the Blue Mountains, Dr. Val Ingham, who's looked at fatigue. There is so much fatigue. So if you're just trying to get through the day, and then you're so fatigued. And we have a Biz Community Toolkit program, which is a micro-learning um, approach that we deliver in business communities, so like local government areas. And we we ask questions, we build, uh, build skills, little five-minute intervals, but we also collect data. And there's a Queensland council that we had um, a couple of hundred businesses participate, and the data told us that 25% of those businesses can't keep going. So they want to shut up shop. That's not because a disaster has put them out of you put them out of business, but they just don't want to do business anymore. And that's alarming for a community if a quarter of the businesses and small businesses in those communities don't want to do business anymore. So I think those kind of stats is what we're trying to um, drive and advocate and put to politicians to say, hey, if this is in one community, imagine what it is around all the others. That's a major economic issue for this country. Is that something um, when you say don't want to do business anymore? Is that the kind of, you know what, I'm tired of this 20 hour days, I, I'm just done that kind of a response? 100%. Yeah. So the module in particular that we have for that is called Can't Keep Going. And we ask two questions. And one question is, you know, are you thinking about closing your business because you can't keep going? And 25% are saying yes. So in this particular Queensland um, LGA, we're now doing workshops and working with that community to understand what it is. I mean, is it because some of them are at the retirement age and they're like, you know what, too many disasters, we're about to hang up our boots, so maybe we'll do it now? Or is it just that literally people have just had enough because they're putting in, you know, money, um, you know, hard work, it's taking over their lives and there's just they just seem no they don't know where to go there seems no success coming out of it the profits that they were probably making a few years ago you know it's a different way of having to do business now because of all the different disruptions so it's an interesting conundrum but it's a big Mm -hmm. issue for every country if that's the reality Uh, you're talking about a, a local council there what about chambers of commerce is that something that can be leveraged for by small businesses to try and get things turned around and help? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we do a lot of work with Chambers of Commerce and I'm going to go two sides of the fence here. So if to me, Chambers of Commerce are very, I guess, they're successful based on the volunteers or the people who are leading it. So if you have a mm. wonderful you know, chair or committee of your chamber that's really passionate and really inclusive. And I've seen it in some of the little small towns impacted by the bushfires. You are thriving because you have fantastic leadership to thrive. The other side of the fence, and one of my um, volunteer advisors said this to me, that a lot of the chambers around are full of pale, stale males that are politically <laughs> that are politically motivated. So they might have mayor on their bucket list. So that's not an inclusive environment that would welcome probably the majority of small businesses. So I think um chambers have that I to me it's it's depends on who's leading it and who's able to actively be part of it. 
So we do, we just wrote a, um, a white paper in the Blue Mountains on business community networks. And that was alongside Professor Daniel Aldrich from um, Northeastern University in Boston. So he's the global expert on social capital, looking at business community networks. And it was alarming that businesses there don't know why they should be networking as businesses. Now, that to me just seems extraordinary because not only if you are connected before a disaster, are you more resilient and ready for the disaster because you've got the people around you, but networks bring you knowledge and business opportunities and, you know, collaborations for supplier costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I find that in itself quite extraordinary. The 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 other thing that caught my attention, and uh, now I'm thinking of other questions too, I've got to hopefully I don't forget any of these. You mentioned 25%, you know, want to, or, or thinking at some point, maybe just closing up the doors and that's it. What are the other 75% doing different by way of resilience? What What's their thinking? You know, are they doing something, thinking something different? You know, what, what's setting them apart? And um, I, I guess I'll just add this too, because some of that, what you just said too, it got me thinking is maybe that 75% has a stronger business network. Oh, absolutely. So business networks are, you know, the untapped kind of golden nugget within business communities, what we're finding. Um, and I think, you know, there's multiple, I guess, answers to the other 75%. They could have um, different businesses that, you know, many thrived through COVID. So, I mean, I'm talking to you from Melbourne, the most lockdown city in the world. We had two years of lockdowns and curfews. You couldn't go out to your, your local, you know, milk bar, had to shop at, shut at nine o'clock at night. So I couldn't get milk. And that means they couldn't trade. So they weren't earning money. Um, I think it's, again, from leadership, some businesses found positive opportunities to reset their business and come up with new ideas. So we had, you know, production lines that made gin turned into sanitising production lines, um, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. I think absolutely networks. I think businesses who were more prepared I mean, you know, I've got an MBA. I never learned that the government could mandate the front door of my business had to be closed. You know, I, I was not prepared for that. Um, but I think those that could respond quickly, could adapt quickly. So, again, restaurants went to takeaway, et cetera. Those businesses have been thriving. So I think it's a mixture of things, but absolutely about business community collaborations and connections and support and, you know, even competitor collaborations. So I saw great examples of, com you know, competitors coming together and they're still doing that now um, to help each other to thrive and to get through, you know, these quite challenging times. Uh, don't let me forget, uh, I have an example about what you just said when we talk about Lismore and the floods later on. Don't, don't right, let me right. forget that. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it, it sounds a little bit like some of that 75, and I, I, I really shouldn't just say 25 and 75%, but yep. some successful businesses have a network that is a little bit beyond just a business network. It sounds mm -hmm. like they have, um, they're more aware of some of the other uh, things in their community that might be going on and other resources, yep. right? It's not just the business next door. I know them. So, you know, I'm more resilient because we can just pass things back and forth. It seems Absolutely. to be a little bit more than that. Is Am I yep. kind of thinking right? 
Yeah, 100%. So things like, I guess, you know, during the bushfires and whatnot, there were evacuation help, you know, people evacuated their houses and couldn't evacuate their businesses unless they had other help. So, you know, to move machinery or shut down uh, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. So the connections, and I referred to Professor Daniel Aldrich before. So his approach to social capital or community connections, there's three, there's bonding, bridging and linking ties. And it's a really great structure because you're, I'm going to get these wrong, but your bonding ties are like your family and your really close friends. Now, if they tell you that there's a bushfire coming, apparently you're not, you're probably not going to believe them. You're going to, yeah, yeah, whatever. Your bridging (laughs) ties, your bridging ties are like the business, you know, across the road down the street, your competitors, the industry associations, those bridging ties are your networks that you absolutely believe and you want to be part of. So people, almost your employees could be bridging ties as well. And then the other one is linking ties and linking ties are the connections that you make kind of, I guess, if the other two are sort of horizontal, these ones are vertical. So that'd be connections that you have to your local emergency services or your local, you know, um, local council or your local government. And I think when you're thinking about networks, if you just think of the business next door, although in saying that, a lot of businesses don't know the people in the business next door. But if you think about, I guess, the, the matrix of connections that you could have, And there's data that, again, Professor Aldrich has done that connected communities are more resilient than affluent communities. So the argument that you need money to build resilience is incorrect. You just need to connect your people and then that builds resilience. Interesting. We've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking today with Renee Hanvin, uh, who is the founder of Resilient Ready, joining us today from Melbourne, Australia. And we'll be right back. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, Small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one. Hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We are talking with Renee Hanwin today about business resilience and with, uh, sorry, small business and resilience. <laughs> uh, there was something else we were going to talk about, uh, Renee, and that is livelihoods. Yeah, Alex, I think um, one of the things people forget when you, I guess, start talking about businesses and the role of businesses in communities is that, you know, unless you were born into some, you know, fabulous family trust, you likely have to work to bring in money for your livelihood. And your livelihood, I guess, is what pays for your, you know, your mortgage or your rent or your food or the clothes or your schooling or your kids, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what's forgotten often is that when we're supporting people to keep their business in business, that's because we're supporting livelihoods. And if we, if businesses don't stay in business, then obviously that impacts the people they can employ, including the business owner. But that has, I guess, a pyramid effect in the sense that losing businesses loses jobs, puts more on unemployment, um, leads to more homelessness, leads to more domestic violence, leads to more, you know, mental health, major mental health people, um, issues, and particularly in certain regions, and I say, you know, regional regions in particular, leads to suicide. So I think the the reality of keeping small businesses and, and getting them resilient, ready, and, and able to, I guess, face and thrive through every uh, future disruption is because we want society to be, living well and they need livelihoods to do that. So I think that's the the livelihoods terminology for me is what's resonating most, I think, with the governments and, you know, uh, corporates not to an extent because, you know, small businesses to corporates are pretty much customers um, or suppliers. But certainly from a government conversation, I think that livelihood component, um, you know, is is starting to kind of have a bit of traction and, and, and resonate a bit more. Right. And, um to take something that you mentioned uh, a step further, if a business does close, then all the other um, dependent businesses are impacted too. It could be a landlord um, uh, who could be, you know, the, the company that comes in and delivers coffee, you know, they've 100%. lost uh, uh, money and a customer now, or the company that comes in and waters the plants. Exactly. You know, now they're impacted. So it, it seems that, you you can have one business go down, but it impacts so many more. Like there there's oh. so many interdependencies. To, absolutely, to right? yeah, absolutely. And I I mean you know I look at small business and small business communities as ecosystems. So social and um, economic heartbeats of communities, but they are their ecosystems. So you're right. So if a small, let's say a, you know, the postal franchise goes down that, you know, there's no cleaners, there's no, you know, posties, there's like, it, it just has this, I guess, um, ecosystem of impact to suppliers, to jobs. And then also if that business closes down and, you know, there's um, an example of after some bushfires here about uh, 10, 11 years ago, one community lost their hardware shop. So not only, and this is going to sound a might sound a bit silly, but not only did they lose the shop, the jobs, they lost access to being able to buy a mop that didn't come with a 30-minute drive to the next town. And that might seem a bit, you know, oh, well, you know, 
just order one online or whatever. But, you know, if you need a mop, you need a mop. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. and we um, we use the term business. So to me, a business is not just a profit-making business. Businesses are also social enterprises like what we are and also not-for-profits because a not-for-profit has to operate and be in business to serve those most vulnerable in community. So if you have a small not-for-profit that's not in business or it's struggling or it's put out of business, that in particular, don't worry about the mop. Like that's meaning that, you know, kids are not getting fed and, you know, the elderly are not getting medicated, et cetera. So that has a mm -hmm. major societal um, issue as well. You mentioned using your term, uh, looking at small businesses as an ecosystem. Are they also a uh, identifier for how uh, well a community might be on a resi resilient scale or, you know, by way of, um, you know, if, if the, echo, the small business ecosystem isn't doing well, then the community at large may not be doing well. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much focus at the moment in many regional communities here from an economic development perspective, because again, a lot of these small, the, these communities in rural areas, and you know, when I say rural, we're not talking like the outback, like we're talking, you know, just out of metropolitan areas, but the businesses have been so smashed by bushfires, COVID, floods. And when those businesses don't reopen, that has a major effect on the well-being of the community, um, you know, the streetscapes. You walk down the streets mm. uh, like Lismore, which I know we'll talk about, you know, that had the yeah. catastrophic floods. So, you know, nothing's open. There's nothing there. It doesn't bring people in. We had the same thing in the CBD in Melbourne. So we were locked down. No one could go into our major city except for um, emergency services and certain work types. So you lost overnight the cafes, the hairdressers. Like they just vanished and not many have come back. But I think when you're talking about businesses in the spate of a disaster, so the emergency services can't come and save everyone and the emergency services are not always in the community when the disaster occurs. So mm -hmm. business leaders are, are untapped assets in those communities because they are on the ground, they're connected to their customers, connected to their employees, they can, you know, share messaging, they can give updates. So absolutely they are so important to not just the response, but to me, the preparedness. And that's the space mm -hmm. that I'm in and really passionate about. And that's where we need to upskill and put some time and some effort and some funding into building resilience and readiness in business people. It's interesting. You said preparedness. And if you do have a weak ecosystem you know, among small businesses, then it's harder to prepare because the focus uh, starts to, you know, I know I would, I'm paying more attention to my business. I'm, otherwise, I'm going to be one of these businesses that go out. So yep. I, I'm not paying attention as much, you know, mm. outside. I'm trying to focus inside and stay afloat, which lowers, oh, which lowers the preparedness for, you know, the overall community and, you know, probably my own business. And do you know what, Alex? So that is the absolute mindset that I think we have portrayed and that has become a culture in the small business community. And I guess, you know, what I'm trying to do as part of our Resilient Ready approach is change that culture because you can take one step to get ready for 80% of disasters. So don't think about, you know, is a bushfire going to put me out of business or a power outage or a cyber attack because you can take steps that actually get you ready. And in that process of getting ready, ready, you're actually going to do business better in the good times. So mm. it just means that you can, it, it means you're not fighting to survive the bad, you're thriving the bad. 
And a great example is, you know, how many businesses had a remote working approach or when a bushfire happens, there's so many stories of, you know, over here, the cultural or the, the government-led approach is, you know, save your house. Yet I hear from, you know, people, it's like, my house I can replace. Yes, I would lose the memories and that, but my business is my livelihood. I should have saved the machinery. And in Canada, mm. that you you have that approach, you know, get your business ready and get your business to safely keep operating is just as important as your house. I use that um, in a lot of my talks. Um, but here we don't have that approach and we need to have that approach. And setting businesses up with the mindset and the capabilities to do good business in the good in the good times that sets you up to thrive in the bad you know, it's it's not that hard. It's just a change in approach. Interesting. I, I really liked what you just had to say there. I, I I think a lot of it sometimes is changing the approach, you know, change get, get what's out of here, change it, and think differently, and then you can really take steps forward. Yeah. You know, that That's where it begins, you know. Um, and obviously it's with business, some business owners, it's with community leaders. It's with, you know, politicians at higher levels. They yep. all need to start changing. You know, as you said, the 97, 98%, <laughs> that's a huge chunk here, you know, that you're ignoring. Yep. So you've got to change your mindset. 100%, Alex. And I think to me, it's thinking differently, but I'm going to be honest, there's been decades and decades and white papers and inquiries around yeah. thinking differently. We've got to do differently. And that's what mm. that, that's what I'm focused on. It's like 10% thinking, 90% doing. Let's just do stuff to change cultures, do stuff to change mindsets. And that's why we've got lots of tools and micro learning approaches that we are building and, and co-designing with, you know, bushfire impacted communities on Kangaroo Islands that got decimated with the, you know, the fires in 2019, 20. And they need, they know they need to start thinking differently. So we're working with them to get them, you know, doing things differently so that it's, they're seeing that, you know, can see the results and see the changes. During our break, you had a, an interesting uh, example about Kangaroo Island um, uh, regarding a gas station. Yeah, so Kangaroo Island is a little island off South Australia and they got absolutely um, really badly impacted by um, the bushfires um, and basically a lot of businesses and small businesses in those really impacted areas just never reopened. So a certain western side of the island found themselves that there was no like petrol or gas station anymore. Um, and that's a that's a major problem, not just for the locals that live there, but it's a tourist island. So you can't have tourists coming and then there's no gas or petrol for them to fill up with. So one particular caravan park, this beautiful lady Fiona, she was like, okay, well, I've never wanted to sell petrol in my life, but you know, I have to. So her business, they decided to rebuild and stay there. And so she took on, I guess, those um, essential services that the community required and set it up in her business as an add-on to her business because well, she felt she had to. And whether or not that will, you know, prove to be a thriving revenue stream, I don't know. That's not the reason why she set it up. She literally set it up because it's a community necessity and as a local small business person and a, and a community person, she felt it was she could do it, so she should do it. And she will be successful, guarantee it, because people will know what she did and would rather support someone who knows uh, how do you, how can you say it um, is on their side. Hundred so percent, right? Yep. You came yep. from where we are. You were impacted just like we are, and yet you stepped yep. up to help us. So yep. she will be successful. Kudos to her. 
Yeah, 100%. And she's a really good example, sorry, Alex, in the sense too of her rebuild. She rebuilt the business side of her caravan park before her house. And again, because she identified that the livelihood was fundamental. If she didn't build it, set it up so she could have a livelihood, then how could she enjoy, you know, the house and and setting up home? So I think that in itself is an interesting, you know, outcome as well. So let's take uh, a a different little uh, look now. You had some experiences in Lismore, Australia. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Lismore um, in northern New South Wales, I'm sure um, many of the people watching um, saw the catastrophic floods. Um, I can't remember exactly how high, but the the floodwaters went, you know, there's a normal sort of fish and chip shop and they have an awning out the front. It went past that top of the first part of the um, first floor and almost up to the um, height of the second floor. So I was up there um, a couple of weeks ago and it was six months after it happened. And, you know, it's just, it's really extraordinary times. And I guess from a business perspective and the small businesses that are still not operating, it's heartbreaking. And talking to some of those business owners that are either never reopening um, or trying to work out how to reopen, and it's just heartbreaking. And you can see the community, you know, the community is doing so well and coming together and really supporting each other, but they've got a long journey to go. That community has come uh, together before because I know you and I were talking before we even started recording, um, and we've already mentioned that I have family down there and uh, that live in Lismore and have businesses there. And the community does come together because the floods that were, what, five, six years ago? Five, six years ago? Yep. When uh, um, the flood of the century at that time, they, uh, my, my cousin James and, and his wife Kate, um, they run North Cottage, sorry, North Cottage, <laughs> North Coast uh, yep. wholesaling. And they were using their trucks to help other businesses move their equipment and supplies out and putting it up in storage in their warehouse before the floods. Yep. So that you know the impact was minimized and they were doing that for everybody. And it, this flood that just happened six months ago, they couldn't do it because the water was higher than the last time. And they were impacted. Um, mm. uh, sadly, um, I think they're. I, I won't say back to normal because I know the com- the community is still struggling and still rebuilding. So, um, but they at least have their base of operations they can get into now. And I saw the pictures of the flooded floors, <laughs> things like that. There was even a picture, uh, and you just explained it uh, quite well. The awnings over a a chip shop. Mm-hmm. And um, but there was a picture that I saw up here that was reported that looked down the entire main street mm-hmm. in Lismore, and all you could see were the tops of the awnings. And yep. in some places, you couldn't see anything, but it was yep. pointed out underneath that water is actually a single story building. Yeah. And when you go back up, I mean, I've been to Lismore many times. It's a really vibrant, you know, um, regional town. And, you know, you stand there and you look at the one from, yeah, five years ago and it's like, oh, that's the biggest one we've had. And then you look at it now, the one that happened, you know, six months ago, and it's almost double the height. And you can't even fathom like how, you know, how that occurs. But I have to say there's been a really um, amazing camaraderie and I guess connection between the business community. There's a fantastic lady up there, Jane Laverty, who has been coordinating um, a lot of support 
um, for the business community, created, set up a hub for them to come and work in, um, give them lots of, you know, support in terms of how they can try and keep their businesses uh, rolling. And there's a real, I guess, you know, people are ready to set the business up again. So those that aren't quite open yet, they're ready. They're just they're just waiting for the processes of the rebuilds or whatever to happen. But you know they're re- they're ready to go. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit more? Because that was going to be my next question: is what are some of these businesses doing right now to uh, get themselves well to be able to open the doors, or yeah. if the doors are already open, get yep. themselves you know going really going again. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I observe everything, um, Alex. So, and from that kind of disaster sort of preparedness. So I was walking around and looking at, you know, cafes open and I was like, why is that one open? But the one down the road's not. And then I was looking at how they'd set up, you know, they've now got painted concrete floors and the, you know, the, the structural setup and that is back to sort of rawness or it's, you know, there's not the big, you know, um, plasterboards and, you know, painted. Yeah. It's back to kind of, I guess, the, the structures of the building. And I was talking to them and it was like, you know, you guys have, you know, reopened and got yourself sorted. And they're like, yep, we decided we had to for ourselves, but also for the community because people need to come together and have a coffee. So to me, again, another great example of, you know, getting your business back up because it's a service to the community. There's another wonderful lady, Ellen, who's she's head of the business chamber up there, and she has this craft kind of stall, and she wants to, she can't wait to reopen, but she's identified that, well, what I had ready last time didn't work because whilst I'd packaged things up, they floated away, so I lost everything. So she's now identified a structure that she can put in the shop that means she can pack all her items up in floating bags or waterproof bags, massive ones, and tie them So that means then when the water comes in and then the water goes out and obviously all the windows are smashed and everything, her stuff won't float, well, hopefully shouldn't float down the street. So I guess that kind of mindset that they know that it might happen again, but they don't want to leave. It's their town. It's their home. Um, So they're, you know, thinking differently about what to do to get themselves ready. And she was talking too about um, setting up some storage at her house because she lives on the hill so that if a flood's anticipated, she'll pack up the essential things and take them, you know, with her to this higher um, ground area. So, yeah, it's interesting just the, I think, so many times disasters happen and then you sort of, oh, yes, it won't happen again. So you kind of just go back to normal, whereas now a lot of the people I'm speaking to are like, you know what, this is the third disaster we've had. I need to be getting, you know, doing things differently and, and getting them a bit more ready. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's uh, part of that too. A lot of uh, Lismore had a big flood back in, uh, was it 19, you told me before we started, 1914? Yeah, the next big one was five years ago and yes. then six months ago. Yep. So uh, for for the one that happened five years ago, a lot of the people living there really had no reference, you know, from 1914. But now right. a lot of these business owners and community leaders and, and just anybody knows we just went through two in the span of five and a half years. So, yep. yeah, now let's start doing something different because the next one could be three years away. Yeah, yep, you know? absolutely. So it seems they're taking this opportunity now to uh, use lessons learned and really start making change. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, the floods in Lismore, absolutely catastrophic, but also uh, the bushfires that we've had, the COVID lockdowns, as I mentioned. I mean, you know, in Melbourne, there are businesses that, you know, have not recovered from being locked down and, and you know, that's had major kind of impacts as well. But I think the reality is we're in a new era of, you know, compound disasters. Like it's not just, you know, can you survive a bushfire? It's can you survive a bushfire flood of COVID? And there's stories of small businesses. At the same time. <laughs> at the same time, 100%. And who's, who's, whose business continuity plan has that in it? Um, and I think, um, you know, there's stories of, you know, small businesses that were evacuating the bushfires and she had 127 cyber attacks on her website at the same time. So the disruptions are coming, you know, from anywhere and they're, you know, they're part of business as usual, I guess, in, in today's world. So if we don't build that culture and the understanding and make, you know, risk understanding and, you know, we remove, we don't use the jargon words, but use those kind of words to mm-hmm. get people knowing that they've, they've got to think differently and you've got to get, a, you've got to get a bit, a bit better at doing business. So, yeah. because again, so many people fall into small businesses just because of a passion or a skill or a hobby, but really you've got to be, you've got to be good at business because if you're not good at business, then you might not be in business for too long. Right. So we have about uh, three minutes, no, less than two and a half minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to convey? No, I just think, you know, if anyone who's listening, who's from any role in anywhere in the world that can really think differently about the small business community, please reach out. Absolutely happy to um, help. But, you know, this is a um, stakeholder group that is really vital to community, social and economic well-being, and they are untapped assets. So I hope that this conversation, and thanks, Alex, for having me, means that we can kind of transition the mindset and approach and, and the again, the funding and the support of building capabilities in this really, really important stakeholder group. We, we still have a minute and a half, so I'm just going to jump oh. in on something you mentioned there. You, uh, you mentioned you know, diverse communities with 97, 98% of uh, businesses being small. Can mm. you imagine the amount of different ideas and thoughts that exist in that pool that is going untapped? Not, oh. just, not just in resilience or business continuity, but in almost anything. That's a huge pool of diverse people to, to tap into. Absolutely. And also, I mean, the knowledge and the lived experience and also, you know, the business people, particularly in, say, non-English speaking or cold communities, you know, they are local leaders. So why are they not being embraced to, you know, be part of big decision making and, you know, building their skills so they can see it and connect it into their customers, their employees, their suppliers? You know, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. It's almost too simple, but it's not. But it's not. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be the, the forgotten or the ignored group, right? Exactly. So, exactly. Exactly. Renee, thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise. I really appreciate it today. Alex, thanks so much. It's been so great to chat with you. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And everybody else who's watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.